Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 1.31, Season 1 Review, Part 1. All right, guys, here we are. We have finally made it to the end of the first season. Well, almost. As you have probably figured out already, today is the first part of the season in review. This is going to be a two-part episode, so next time it will officially be our final episode of the season. Once we wrap up the season in review, we are going to move straight into our second season of the podcast without any delay, so I'm hoping you are all happy about not having to be without the show for any real amount of time. Today's episode is designed to do a couple of things for you. Now, if you're first starting out on this podcast and you decided not to listen to season one, this episode and the next one will give you some background of where we have been. Likewise, for those of you who have listened from the beginning, we have talked about an incredibly large amount of things. So today we are going to revisit a lot of those things just to remind us of where we've been thus far. The point of today is not to give a complete summary of everything we have talked about. If you want that, just go re-listen to the first season again. But rather, it is to talk about the major themes and events that we have seen and that are going to be important moving forward. Second, we are going to attempt to tie all these things together in order to come up with some overarching themes of the early colonial period and then attempt to decide what those things mean for the long term. By the time we finish up these two episodes, we should have a pretty good idea of where we have been and the overarching themes that pull everything together. So, without any further ado, let's jump in and begin. The European landscape was going through a period of dramatic change during the 16th century. The Renaissance was spreading as the transition from the medieval world to the early modern world began. The religious landscape was changing with the spread of the Reformation, the economy was beginning a long period of modernization, and explorers were heading across the Atlantic. These changes are not only going to reform Europe as a whole, but they are going to prove to be the catalyst for the eventual creation of the English colonies in North America. The history of the 16th century in England can best be described by summarizing the twin monarchies that would come to define the century. Specifically, we are talking about Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, though Mary I also probably deserves a shout-out. Henry VIII's reign over England is important for numerous reasons, but for our story, nothing he did is more important than the religious changes that he brought to England. During the latter part of the 15-teens, the Reformation began to sweep across England. Prior to the Reformation in Europe, there was, at least in Western Europe, only one type of Christianity, specifically Catholicism. That was it, end of story. However, by the time the early part of the 1500s rolled around, anger was building towards the church throughout Europe. This sense of anger stemmed out of an increasing amount of opulence that was forming in the church. Plus, there was a perceived commercialization of the church's practices. Now, nowhere was this more poignant than it was through the sale of indulgences. An indulgence was a way that a person could purchase a reprieve for a sin for themselves or others and was something that could be used either for the living or for the dead. This anger would boil over when Martin Luther would publish a paper detailing his grievances with the church. Tapping into that groundswell of anger, a wide-scale denunciation of the church suddenly came to fruition. The Reformation would lead to wide swaths of Europe, particularly in the Holy Roman Empire, to reject Catholicism and turn to a type of Christianity that placed scripture above everything else and lacked any form of official hierarchy. 
This is important because it means that there was not one kind of Protestant, but rather there were multiple variations of Protestantism. This lack of any kind of centralized structure meant that Protestantism could adapt to local tradition and local sediments. This made it much easier for the religion to spread as it moved throughout Europe. When Henry VIII decided that he is wanting out of his marriage with Catherine of Aragon, he initially seeks a divorce. When the Pope refuses to grant the divorce, it leads to years of theological fighting between Henry VIII and that Pope. Henry, having been turned on to the ideas of the Reformation, possibly by Anne Boleyn, suddenly sees his option as not bending to the church's will, but rather placing himself at the head of the Church of England. This has numerous advantages. Beyond getting him his divorce, it means that Henry suddenly was both the leader of the government as well as the leader of the people's faith. This religious transformation is going to have a huge effect on the future of England both at home and abroad. Out of this reformed church will emerge a group looking for a much more pure approach to their religious practices. This group of Calvinists is first going to appear in England during the 1550s. They are going to become better known to history through what was originally meant to be an epithet. They would become known as the Puritans. The Puritans will come to be a defining part of English life throughout the 17th century and they will also form the basis of the New England colonies. If it is Henry VIII who revolutionized life during the 16th century, it is Elizabeth I that secured that legacy and placed England on a path to becoming a global power. Elizabeth does two things that are critical, one in regard to religion and the other was scoring a huge propaganda victory during the Battle of the Spanish Armada during the Anglo-Spanish War. To begin with the former, the religious situation in England remained in flux during the 1550s. After her sister Mary I came to the throne, England was turned back in a sharply Catholic direction. Recall that Mary I was the daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. Mary had remained loyal to her mother and her faith even when her father moved on to Anne Boleyn. Therefore, it shouldn't come as much of a surprise to anybody that upon getting to the throne, she attempted to violently turn back the clock and restore Catholicism. This proved to be a violent reversal with persecutions quickly becoming the order of the day. There is a reason why she has earned herself the nickname of Bloody Mary. Unfortunately for Mary, however, her reign was cut short when she died of cancer in 1558. Her husband, Philip II of Spain, had been intentionally left out of the line of succession, so with the death of Mary, England was left without a leader. The job therefore fell to the second daughter of Henry VIII, Elizabeth. Elizabeth was in many ways the polar opposite of Mary, insomuch as she was the child of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Just as Mary sought to preserve her mother's faith, so did Elizabeth I. Elizabeth's reign was long enough, though not because of any lack of effort to actually assassinate and remove her, to secure the Church of England as the rightful Church of the nation. This move, however, did cause unavoidable tension both domestically and abroad. Domestically, her biggest rival was Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary, both a devout Catholic and having a legitimate claim to the English throne, tried time and time again to rid herself of Elizabeth, who, much to her chagrin, kept not dying. Internationally, it was Philip II of Spain, the guy who had briefly been the King of England with Mary I, that would cause the biggest headaches. Tension between the Spanish and the English reached a fever pitch before boiling over during the 1580s into the Anglo-Spanish War. While the war itself would prove to be indecisive, the English do score a huge victory during the Battle of the Spanish Armada. The brutal condition of the seas, plus an inability for relief troops on the channel to reach a predetermined rendezvous point, all but doomed the mission for the Spanish. 
While the battle has long been placed front and center as a defining battle of the Western world, the truth is far more that the battle was, while important, not a game changer. What it was, however, was a huge propaganda win for the English. It helped secure Elizabeth's reign in England, which in turn allowed her to better stabilize the religious turmoil in the country at the time. The Anglo-Spanish War itself becomes a complete mess and ultimately was something that was deeply unpopular in both countries. Both Philip II and Elizabeth are dead by the time the fighting officially ends in 1604, which is in turn going to open up the funding for, and possibly more importantly, the waterways for the English to jump into the colonization game, which is going to see them landing three years later in Jamestown. These are the conditions under which the first North American English colonies are founded, with the exception of Roanoke, which we will talk about briefly in just a moment. The changing English landscape is going to leave a mark on those who would end up crossing the Atlantic as well. It is going to be what determined their worldviews and would explain what they did and why they did it. Colonization of the Americas was not a new thing by the time 1607 rolled around. The Spanish and Portuguese had a century of exploration behind them, the English had sent explorers as well, and had discovered the valuable fisheries off the eastern coast of what would become the United States and Canada. However, prior to the 1580s, the idea of a more permanent settlement was not in the cards for England. Settlements in the New World had been a thing for a while for both the Spanish and the Portuguese. This, of course, had led to conflict with the Native Americans time and time again as they did what they could to protect their lifestyle in the face of a technologically superior enemy. We likewise know that by 1528, the exploration of the area in and around Florida was taking place, as well as the rest of the Gulf Coast in general. Likewise, we see the beginning of expeditions into the American Southwest, into what is modern-day New Mexico, and up into the north. The Spanish established a fort in Florida in the 1560s. The fort served a dual purpose. First, it was meant to better help control goods washing up on the Florida coast as a result of piracy down in the Caribbean. But it also served as a check against Huguenots, who had a small outpost in Florida as well. Florida is going to spend the next 250 or so years as a possession of Spain. Following their defeat of the Huguenots, the Spanish established forts north along the eastern seaboard. However, conditions and underpopulation made these impossible to maintain, and the Spanish would end up abandoning their holdings in the Chesapeake, retreating back to their Florida fortifications. We are also aware of a Jesuit settlement up around Virginia. That small settlement would be slaughtered when their guide, Don Luis, or possibly Opechancanough, if you are interested in going down that rabbit hole, turned on them and led an attack which resulted in the death of all of the Jesuits. The English joined the colonization game rather late and don't make any real attempts at settling North America until the failed Roanoke colony. The colony was in trouble from the beginning and endured years of struggle before it seemingly just disappeared sometime before 1590. Roanoke, founded by Sir Walter Raleigh, fell victim to several failures. They had a poor relationship with local Indians, with Powhatan himself commenting to John Smith that he himself had personally killed the remaining colonists. Likewise, as we see years later with the Jamestown colony, life in Virginia is hard. Jamestown never became a lost colony, but it's not like it didn't get really close more than once. We see multiple times the population of the colony dropped dangerously low, eventually reaching the point where there was only a handful of living settlers left. And this is with constant resupply trips from England. In Roanoke, there were no resupply trips following 1587 because the Anglo-Spanish War broke out. Regardless of the cause of death, Roanoke failed and it was not until 1607, following the conclusion of the Anglo-Spanish War, 
that the English once again attempted a settlement in North America. If we need to draw that line in the sand and pick a single day when the colonial United States is born, it is difficult to argue that 1607 isn't that date. We directly connect the English colonies with what would become the United States. The war for independence wasn't against Spain or Portugal, it was against the English. Jamestown is the first English colony that ends up surviving, therefore the date of 1607 is going to stick. Among the first groups to settle in Jamestown was a mix between wealthy second sons, those who were not entitled to large inheritances from their fathers, as well as urban poor who during the late 16th and 17th century had begun flooding into London. This group, however, presented problems when it came to traveling to such a harsh and unforgiving land. The primary problem is that basically nobody knew the first thing about how to actually, you know, grow a farm. The wealthy landowners didn't know what they were doing, they had people doing their farming for them. The problem is they had made an incorrect assumption that the urban poor weren't skilled farmers, which, yeah, they weren't. The urban poor had been forced off their land in the century before, and a lot of these people coming over had never actually farmed a day in their life. Furthermore, Jamestown wasn't located in some desolate, uninhabited area. The colonists settled down right in the middle of one of the most densely inhabited regions along the entire Atlantic coast. The Powhatan Confederacy was an assemblage of tribes loosely connected under the leadership of that central chieftain, Powhatan. Powhatan, for his role, seems to have had conflicting feelings towards the English and how he could use them to his own advantage. The English were not Powhatan's first exposure to Europeans. We know from earlier today that he may have personally killed the colonists from Roanoke, though it is also possible that this story was just something to make sure that the English understood that he was not somebody to be trifled with. Likewise, Powhatan would have known Don Luis, who was not only kidnapped by the Europeans, but was also the guy who ended up leading the attack on the Jesuits. Powhatan understood the danger of the Europeans, and importantly, he understood exactly what they were capable of doing. However, at the same time, he understood what they meant if they could be used as an ally. Powhatan was standing at the head of probably around 15 to 20,000 people. He had enemies that would have been more than happy to knock him off his perch and assume his position. Powhatan therefore found himself in an interesting position in regards to the English. First, it had become abundantly clear very quickly that the colonists were not immediately going to be self-sufficient. It was not lost upon Powhatan that the English chose to settle on a little outcropping of land that had absolutely no fresh water. They were going to be dependent on the Indian tribes for their survival. Powhatan was also keenly aware that the English were technologically superior and was interested in things like weapons and armor. Surely a musket is something that he would have liked in his personal arsenal. In this fashion, he understood that the English would make a far better ally than enemy, and more importantly, would be somebody that he would want fighting his enemies for him. Powhatan believed, and not without good cause, that he could manipulate the situation in such a way that he could control the English. This position isn't entirely wrong either. Powden was excellent at being both the cause for and solution to violence against the English in Virginia. Men loyal to him would ambush the English and Powden could jump in and save the day. In regards to food, Powden was the main reason why the entire colony didn't simply starve to death right off the bat. He controlled large amounts of the Jamestown food supply, initially at least, and the colonists were dependent on his food to survive. This gives him an incredible amount of power over them. 
Should the English ever step too far out of line, Paladin could simply cut off the food supply and nature would eliminate the English threat. At the same time, the English knew that they were dependent on Paladin for food and therefore couldn't let anything bad happen to him either. For Paladin, control over the food was tantamount to control over the English. Finally, and most importantly, Paladin was very aware of his numerical advantage. Paladin had some 20,000 people under his control. Sure, they were not all going to be warriors. This is going to include the old women and children, the injured and such. However, even if we eliminate those numbers from this group, he still had a very large and effective fighting force, and one that is still much larger than what the English can muster. Let's assume for a second that every single Englishman in Jamestown can fight, which of course they couldn't because they're dying like flies. The best they're going to be able to do is muster a little over 100 men. Even if the best Paladin can pull together is a limited army of 2,000 men, this is still going to be a catastrophe for the English. Regardless of their technological advantage, 2,000 Native American warriors fighting 100 sickly Englishmen with muskets is always going to end up really badly for the English. What Paladin appears to have failed to fully grasp is the scale of what he was actually facing. While he surely understood that the English, as did all Europeans, posed a threat, the settlers in Jamestown were so busy trying not to die that the threat they posed was minimal. The problem, however, is that very quickly the English would set up a conveyor belt of supplies and more importantly, people. Yeah, people in Jamestown were dying in staggering numbers, but there were always more people being brought over to make up the difference. Following 1609, when Powhatan did decide to cut off the food supply, we see Jamestown enter the starving time a period where the colony very nearly completely died off. By the time relief finally came for Jamestown, the colonists had abandoned the colony and were ready to give up and head home. But for some fortuitous timing by Lord Delaware, Jamestown would have been nothing more than a footnote. However, it is the ability of the English to continually replace their losses that gave them their true advantage. The end result of this is that no matter how fast they died, and yes, they did die a lot, there was always a replacement. Following the starving time, a much more structured Jamestown emerges. Under the leadership of Sir Thomas Dale, Jamestown begins to stabilize, though it would continue to remain a dangerous place. At the same time, there is a normalization of relations between the Powhatan tribes and the settlers at Jamestown. However, this relationship is going to remain wrought with tension and is going to lead to repeated conflict between the English and the Native Americans. And despite these slightly improved relations, we continue to see raids going on between the Jamestown settlers and the local Indian tribes, though Powhatan would play dumb and deny knowledge of any of these events. This period of not constant warfare, but rather harassment and skirmishes, has become known as the First Anglo-Powhatan War. The biggest development of the 16-teens was the introduction of a crop that would come to so completely dominate the South, namely tobacco. First introduced by John Rolfe, the guy who would marry Pocahontas, tobacco would become the staple crop in the region. Tobacco is, amongst other things, a labor-intensive crop that requires huge amounts of land to grow. This is going to lead to, amongst other things, a change in English land policies. Suddenly understanding that large amounts of land were desired, the English began giving away these huge grants. Furthermore, to better extend their footprint in Virginia, the English ordered that these plots be more spaced out. This is going to have big consequences when the massacre of 1622 rolls around. A decade after the first settlement in Virginia, it was clear to everybody that there was not going to be a great city of gold to be found anywhere in Virginia. This was not going to be the vast riches found by Cortez. 
Despite that, however, tobacco would ultimately prove to be incredibly valuable. Despite not having the immediately recognizable value that precious metals carry, it is not without great significance that by the time 1638 arrives, Virginia has become the largest tobacco exporter to Europe. Following the death of Powhatan, his brother Opashenkana would take over for him. While relations were originally good, Opashenkana would ultimately prove not to be his brother. Powhatan had always taken a pragmatic view of the Europeans and asked the question of how could he best use them. In hindsight, we can see just how dangerous this thought process can be. However, for Powhatan at the time, the English could prove to be a powerful ally. A powerful ally whose survival was directly linked to Powhatan himself. If Powhatan wanted the English gone, he didn't need to slaughter them or resort to violence at all. All Powhatan needed to do was not provide them with food and aid. From there, starvation and disease would take over and complete the job without any additional help from Powhatan. Opashenkano, on the other hand, seems to have had viewed the English with far more trepidation than his brother. Opashenkano wasn't looking to make friends with the English, nor was he looking for an alliance. He wanted them gone, and he wanted it done now. This leads to the devastating events of March 22, 1622. In what was a surprise move, Opashenkano led an attack against the English. The English land policies of having the tracts of land so spread out would prove to be catastrophic, as it made it nearly impossible for the colonists to send warnings. Opashenkano was able to move through, methodically killing everybody in his path. Not only had these huge land grants been partially to blame, as they encroached on Native American land, but the policy of keeping them so spaced out made the plots nearly impossible to properly defend. On its face, 1622 was a devastating loss for Jamestown and a massive victory for Opashenkano. Yet, first appearances are not everything, and ultimately the exact opposite would prove to be true, at least for the English. John Smith summed up the true nature of things best when he remarked that the attack was not in fact bad news, but rather was good news for Jamestown, because now the colony had just cause to eliminate the Indian threat once and for all. Smith would prove to be correct in the long term. What comes out of the attack is a near-constant effort by the English to eliminate the Powhatan people. This includes a counter-massacre by the English during a fake peace settlement where poisoned alcohol would end up killing nearly 250 Indians. A peace was finally struck in 1632 that resulted in major land concessions from Opashenkano. The English, despite the peace, never really would return to a peaceful state with Opashenkano or the Powhatan people following the events of 1622. In 1644, Opashenkano would once again attempt a surprise attack against the English. And though he actually killed more English settlers in 1644 than he did in 1622, this attack had the hallmarks of a final Hail Mary type play to keep his confederacy intact. In 1622, the colony had a population of a thousand or so people. By the time of the 1644 attack, that population had boomed to over 10,000. The resulting attacks by Opashinkano leads to a third and final Anglo-Powhatan war. Now, however, there is no advantage for Opashinkano to push. The English have more men, better weapons, and no longer relied on the Indian tribes. There was no longer a question of what to do. The only goal for the English was to completely eliminate the once powerful Powhatan Confederacy. The ensuing war was short and brutal. Lasting only a few years, it marked the end of the Powhatan Confederacy. Opashinkano himself was captured and killed. Aside from their changing relationship with the Indians, politically, the colony was changing as well. As the population grew, it became increasingly necessary to move away from the martial law systems that we see implemented following the starving time and move towards a more stable law code. 
England wanted to grow Jamestown, and moving to a land under martial law is not all that attractive of a proposition. Likewise, as the colony grew, it became clear that the people in Virginia needed more of a say in their daily life. After all, if you were an investor and moved to the colony, it's not like you were going to the board meetings back in London. This leads to the creation of the Virginia House of Burgesses, which would in turn produce the laws to help govern the colony. Ultimately, the Virginia Company would collapse and Virginia would become a crown colony. And while the feeling is that this should have sent ripples through the Virginia colony, the truth is that it really doesn't. Back in England, King James and later King Charles I proved to be relatively uninterested in what was going on across the Atlantic. As we saw from our episodes on Massachusetts, Charles I is going to have other major concerns, concerns that will eventually end up leading to a civil war and his beheading, which will distract him from paying much attention to the North American colonies. For the colonists, their biggest concern was that one of these events would disrupt the tobacco trade, which never really does become much of a problem. In so many ways, the colony at Jamestown stands in sharp contrast from what we see form in New England. Next time, we are going to turn our attention to the New England colonies and their development. Then, after we get through that, we are going to attempt to grab at some of these strings that we have laid out and pull them all together. I appreciate you guys listening to the first part of my season in review, and we will be back here in two weeks' time, and we will look at the second half of our review, and that will be the final episode of our first season. Now, before we completely wrap things up today, I do want to make one more note. If you find that you are interested in the entire English side of all of this and you want to know what's going on back in the home islands, I highly recommend you check out the Pax Britannica podcast, which covers all of these events, but on the English side. I will also mention that this week's episode of Pax Britannica is going to feature a guest spot hosted by me, where I am going to chat about the Plymouth Colony and its early struggles. So if you are anxious to hear me talk even more about Plymouth, go check out Pax Britannica and then stick around and learn about all the events going on back in England that are affecting our colonists over in North America. With that, I will see you all back here in two weeks time where we will wrap up our season in review as well as our first season 